0: crazy like wow like superhero stuff living the way I would pretend as a child like in my backyard like oh look what I'm doing but they're really out there 73 days she was out there for 73 days and I'm watching the show and I'm crying and I'm crying and there's all these amazing moments she's dancing with the Sun and she's squirrels, thanking the squirrels and being so grateful to everything she ate and just like, and I'm cry- I mean oh, it was just, it was amazing and she's a woman there were so many women out there and I was so impressed because I just when it started I was like, oh, three women and she's a feminist superhero and I can't wait to ask her so many questions she's calling like right now it's gonna happen it's gonna happen like right now okay I'm like I did this I started it a little bit early before she called because I was trying to like center myself so I wouldn't fan girl out on like the explanation of alone before I started for those of you who haven't seen the show it's not like regular reality TV let's put it that way I mean it is in that they edited things heavily and I want to ask with Nia quite a bit about what they left out and I watched she has a YouTube channel on Buckskin Revolution where you can watch the Alone series and listen to her as she unpacks each episode um, and says like the things that she could say and couldn't say because I guess they had a, a DNR or something about the show I guess reality TV shows do that you can't release anything before it happens on the TV but uh, she has her Buckskin Revolution channel that you should check out on YouTube, where she also teaches life skills. There she is! There she is! Okay. 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 Here she is. Okay. Oops. Oh, see, I already made a mistake. Hi, Winia. <sighs> Hi, Sam. How are you? I, I already fangirled out a little bit to the audience before you called to, like, calm myself down. <laughs> And sort of like uh-huh. explain what alone is for maybe some of the people that hadn't seen it. But you're more than alone. Uh-huh. That's the thing, too. I didn't want to just like talk about alone today. Hi. Okay. Okay. I'm calm. I'm together. <laughs> you're so cool. I'm just like over the oh, moon thank to like. You. Oh, I mean, you didn't even have snare wire and you caught rabbits. Okay. I know. I actually got a
1: snarky comment on my YouTube channel today about how bad I did and how they couldn't believe I couldn't catch fish in a lake that was teeming with fish and how bad my trapping was. And it's so funny what people think they know about a thing. Like, they didn't really advertise that I don't have catch underwater. So Most people have no idea that that was one of the challenges that was going on.
0: You had no fish. Well, that's... And they mentioned that at some point, that each place that they dropped people, each campsite is the wrong word, each place in the wilderness where you had the opportunity to live, they were all different. And so... Some had fish and some had, you had uh, squirrels and rabbits and berries. Not everybody had berries, right? Like.
1: I had less berries than most people, I think, actually, because I didn't have much in the way of blueberries. Every site was different for sure. Yeah. But it wasn't really true that like they all had equal Mm -hmm. resources. They tried to give them the best, you know, they tried to make it the best swath and distribute the sites as well as possible. Some sites had way more resources than others, for sure.
0: Yeah, well, which would you well, have... That's the luck of
1: the job. That's the real world.
0: <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> it's Wh- not Disneyland. It's the world.
0: Which, which, uh, which, which site would you have wanted to be on, watching it after? Would you have said, oh, if I would have been there? Did you have even that thought of, like, oh, if I would have been in that no. spot?
1: I mean, similar to the thought that had I been in a spot with more resources... I could have done better and stayed longer. But I was in love with the place that I was. And when you're out there, you don't you have absolutely no idea right. what, what other sites are like and what other people have access to. And there's really no point thinking about what you don't have because that doesn't fit you anymore.
0: Right. Well, but isn't that to do with what you've got. That's a mindset I think that we have in our real lives here all the time is that when we focus on the things that we that someone else has or that we don't have and then it creates like suffering and misery that doesn't even need to be there. It's like what we can exactly. appreciate our own stuff. Okay, so first, I have questions not about alone. Where does your <laughs> name, where does Wania come from? What is the derivation of your super cool name?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So the the story of it is um, one that is interesting and not necessarily super cool. Um, so when I was a teenager, um, when I was Uh, 19, I went and I did a summer course, there was a backpacking field study, so it was eight weeks backpacking in the mounds of Idaho, which was amazing, and one of the traditions of the course was that everyone take a a trail name during that time, um, just to kind of set it aside as a thing separate from your normal life, and so I did that, and I was really interested in ancestral skills and starting to learn more of these life ways that are the things that I'm into now. And I found a book of Lakota stories. And um Mia was a name, I wanted something that sounded beautiful and had a beautiful meaning and was something that I really identified with. And, um, and so Wonia is a really powerful word that means um, like the life spirit, when it's not incorporated in a body, it means uh-huh. the breath of life. And uh-huh. so I took that on as my trail name. And after after going by it for so long, and it was a very, very transformative summer, um, I decided to keep that as my name. And so the, the not pretty part of it is that that's totally cultural appropriation. Oh. And I, you know, I was a young woman, and I didn't really have that lens, and I didn't understand, you know, I had no concept of that or why it might not be a great choice. So um, so that's where Wania comes from, is from a young woman who just named herself a, a word from another tradition that wasn't her own. And I do think it's beautiful, and I do really identify with it, and it's not a choice that I would make today, but I've gone by that longer than I went by the name I was given. And also I feel like it's a way to introduce – It's that keeping that name um, brings up the conversation yeah. and allows me to talk about the concept of cultural appropriation, and just like changing it back would be like uh, letting myself off the hook and pretending that I didn't make – an inappropriate choice when I didn't know any better and it gives me this kind of like this way of addressing such issues from a place of humility as someone who gets it because they've done that Yeah. so um yeah so it's a great question and it's not you know um yeah it's not always an easy subject for me to talk about because of that reason
0: do you do you feel like you've earned the name now that you have embodied all these ancestral skills almost like you could call yourself a a, bunny or a rabbit name at this point because you ate so many like you you even said on that was one of the things they actually showed that you're like I'm part rabbit now <laughs> like I'm or that all of yeah, your cells absolutely. were so do you feel like through the time that you've spent being like because you have integrity with these skills that you're that you've embodied and then you're, you're living and you're teaching does that remove or do you still feel but some just- of that
1: no, I don't I don't think that there's any earning a thing that is, you know, something that I took without permission, uh, you know? So, I mean, wow. I think that it's not an inappropriate name if you look at it in that way, but if you look at it through the lens of cultural appropriation, yeah. I don't think that, you know, that there is anything that just changes. I mean, sure, I think that someone who didn't have a relationship with the skills and wasn't aware of these concepts, maybe it would be a less appropriate thing for, or it would be more harmful for someone else. But I don't feel like that makes it just okay. You know, not unless I had, you know, and, and I, and I've spoken to Lakota people about this too. So it's not completely without relationship to Lakota people. Um, but you know, yeah, no. That I, I, I of people who are all going to have really different opinions about it. So, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's not an, for me to say whether or not I earned it. I guess is the is the bottom line.
0: It's an appropriate. It's an important conversation. Like, cause since we're in this crazy time of, uh, I mean, what's happening with our world right now? There's so, but to even just to recognize a situation, it's like for me in white guilt. Like I have to constantly come up against it and say, Yeah, I'm. Oh, did I lose you? I lost you.
1: You're back. I know. Sorry about that. No, hey, I it's all good. Cell phone here, so.
0: And you're out. In, you're up there in the mountains in Grass Valley. Okay, so here's my next question: How are you friends with a giant okay. cat? <laughs>
1: the the profile shot. Yeah, the, the picture the, the of the. You're looking that.
0: at the. You're looking mm-hmm. into the eyes of this enormous cat. I, I'm a cat person. I'm a crazy cat lady. Like mm-hmm. I love cats, and I saw that picture. I'm like, how are you friends with a giant cat?
1: I mean that's actually a pretty small bobcat as they go. Um <laughs> large, large compared to house cats. But that was a cat that had been hit on the road. Oh. Um, so that cat was no longer alive. Oh really?
0: I thought you were looking deeply
1: yeah. into the eyes of a cat.
0: See, look at me. I completely I misinterpreted the picture. You were.
1: I mean, I was doing that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's all still true.
0: So. And and so for me, when I was watching you, I was so affected and I kept like kind of putting myself where you were. It was so, oh, it was so incredible because you're filming yourself and it's like so intimate because it was almost like I was with you. And that's got to be weird for you. And I'm wondering how like that affected you with the camera and the intimacy. But also when I was watching you, I kept thinking I could never – and you, there were times where you'd pick up an animal and look at it and be like, thank you, thank you, thank you for feeding me. And and you had to be like intimate with that animal and pull off its skin and do all that stuff. Is that, I mean, how do you do that? I, I, I Maybe I'm just so removed from <laughs> survival in life that like, I just couldn't imagine. I mean, I was watching you do it and that was hard for me. Like. I, when I saw Jordan with the Wolverine and I saw his little face and his teeth and I was like, I'm making myself watch this. But like, how did, was that interacting with you with, were you just so grateful for the food that it wasn't, or that's just not freaky for you?
1: It's just not freaky for me. That's been a part of my life for a really long time. You know, I've raised my own meat animals, um, you know, and I was vegetarian and vegan at one point. So I was like very anti-hunting and PETA and vegetarian in high school, um but once i started being introduced to ancestral skills and you know i went right from being vegan to processing and eating roadkill um and i'm you know i have a science background and a deep connection with animals and it's never it has never felt like a juxtaposition to me Mm. to love and feel connected to a wild creature and to you know skin it and break down its body for food and eat it that is the most natural thing in the world to me and to me, the barriers that our society puts up and the, the removal from our food source, that's what feels weird and wrong to me. Um, so, yeah, it certainly was not an issue for me out there and nor in my life in general.
0: See, I um, I, I cook. One of the things I do for a living is I, I, I cook. I have no problem if an animal has no head. Like I can – I've processed so many <laughs> birds. I've deboned so many birds in my time. Like it's – but if they have a head, I can't do it. And, and I think maybe it must be something to do with the way I was raised and I was so far removed. Even when I am working with a food source, I'm still removed from it, even when it's whole. So right. Um, talk a little bit about Buckskin Revolution and what you're doing to try to create that connection again with people and the way we should. I don't want to say should be living our lives. That's weird, but the way we did for thousands of years and then it's just this little tiny little bit here at the end where we're so removed from it
1: exactly right yeah um so yeah i mean you've kind of you've hit the nail on the head there that my work with buckskin revolution is to kind of Um, invite people back into that place of connection, not just with the world around them, um, but with our own selves, with our human communities and with, with our ancestry as humans and what it is that we evolved to do. And absolutely, the bodies that we live in evolved over the course of hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, to to allow us to engage deeply with the world around us. And it's only been a few hundred years that that's completely shifted to where we no longer need a lot of these senses that we evolved with. And I think that you know the malaise that we see in our modern society, and so many people who are unsatisfied and you know dealing with depression and feel like there's something missing from their lives. I believe that that is because we are living lives that are so different from what we evolved to do. And that does, you know, that does leave a feeling of something missing. You know, we have all of these amazing sensory perceptions that are about engaging with the world around us. And instead, we engage with screams, you know, 12 inches from our faces, and we fill our senses with noises. And, you know, like right now, there's a helicopter overhead, and I can hear the highway. And, you know, my ears evolved to the frequency of bird songs. And knowing what's going on in the forest around me through paying attention to what the birds are doing. And um, yeah, I think that the degree to which we engage those skills, those senses, those parts of our body, you know, just our hands in, in fashioning things that we need for our lives, there's something deeply fulfilling about that, you know, on a level that we don't even really know how to verbalize.
0: Um, Crafting, well, that, it's that, making... That's what I'm
1: trying to share.
0: When when humans, I mean, we as humans, all we really have is the ability to create things, right? Either thought or stuff. And I feel like, and watching you craft, it's uh, that was the thing. Okay, so at the beginning of the show, they don't show you for like two weeks. And I get it. It's a reality right. TV show. And they had to show the people that were going to break their leg and get kicked off. And they had to show their stories a little <laughs> bit because they were leaving. And you were going to be there forever. But all those things that we didn't get to see, like, you were just sitting on the ground weaving baskets for two weeks or like what was, because you were, cra- I mean, obviously you were doing things. You were, there's a lot going on in those first couple of weeks. Yeah. So it was all like um, building your amazing shelter, which was like the best shelter. I was like, I want to live there. That's, <laughs> it was, it looked warm and snug and like a real little house, but you were like mm-hmm. literally crafting all the time. Yeah. I mean, when you weren't looking uh, for well, food. There's all kinds
1: or... of things. I mean, that's Hard to sum up. It was a huge time. You know, I mean, it starts off with the most important thing that you can be doing is, yeah, getting your shelter set, and then starting to to key into your environment and where the food sources are, and strategizing how you're going to avail yourself of those. So the, that was what you know. My first couple of days were scouting my site and deciding where to set up my shelter and um being sure that i was in the best possible location and then starting to build and you know we we had snow on day three so it was full on from the very beginning and so i was constantly in this place of trying to balance food resources and shelter and you know when i woke up covered in snow obviously that's going to nudge me to prioritize shelter um for that day um but always trying to hold both of those things and um Certainly the first few days were more focused on shelter for me because I knew that my body still had a lot of calories in it because we had been gorging up until we left. So I knew that my system had as much energy, you know, at the very beginning as I was likely to have. Um, And so I wanted to really focus on shelter at first while I knew I still had those those you know, glycogen stores in my liver. Um, Wow. (laughs) um, But by day four, I started hitting fishing really hard. And over the course of the next couple weeks, um, doing, you know, doing a lot more focus on fishing until it became increasingly clear that I was not in a location that had fish.
0: Right. Um, You just...
1: had very, very shallow water.
0: That must have been so frustrating that you crafted all those lures and you were out there and just sitting for hours i mean were you listening to the birds like <laughs> did you you just i mean i was doing it no <laughs> i was constantly constantly active oh. doing
1: everything i possibly could to improve my situation every daylight hour and well into the night by headlamp there was no downtime and listening to birds okay um,
0: yeah. you know, but so, like the...
1: that's something that i was doing as i was doing everything oh, else gotcha. you know like part of my awareness would be there but um but no constantly how you know, bringing in firewood working on the shelter you know strategizing new ways to to try to make fishing happening finding you know scouting the landscape and seeing whether there were any other better places for fishing going you know making a moose call and going into the woods and calling moose i mean i was i was splitting my strategy between fishing and breeding and moose. but And, you know, you were asking, like, what were the resources that I had? My site was very resource scarce compared to a lot of the other sites. I didn't have big game. You know, I was hoping for problems with bears because I had a bow, (laughs) 45-pound bow and broadheads, and I would have been thrilled to have bears sniffing around my camp. And that happened with a lot of other people. But that's not, you know, I was on a narrow rocky peninsula with no fish and no big game and really actually very scarce small game because it was, you know, mostly bare rock. Right. Um, So in terms of, you asked earlier, in terms of resources, somewhere like Jordan's area where he had fish and big game and a ton of small game. I mean, he was in an area that had been burned a couple years before, which means there's a ton of vegetation regrowth. It's one of the most abundant sites that, you know, that you can possibly have. Um, And mine, in contrast, was a bare rocky peninsula surrounded by shallow water.
0: Right. So, with where you yeah. got to. Now, here's another question I have. Uh, what's your dance background? And I was so bummed that they only showed you once <laughs> with your because I, I watched all of your YouTubes after and you're like, I was dancing every night. I had a dance party until the last week. And um, not every
1: night.
0: Once a week. Once, once a, a week. week. Oh, Okay. But you sang the sun yep. up every morning.
1: I, I sang the sun down you
0: every evening. Sang the sun
1: down. Um, yeah but these were rituals i sang the sun up a lot of mornings but not every morning because mornings were a lot more challenging frankly
0: (laughs) what was it just it was (laughs) so cold all the more reason. was it getting out of bed was just yeah it was cold yeah Yeah. i mean
1: as time went on things you know like starving for weeks on end um and really really cold temperatures and not sleeping well because generally when one is um really undernourished and in ketosis it tends to affect your sleep patterns um so, so yeah, but getting out of a sleeping bag into minus 20 degrees Ugh. and you haven't had anything to eat for weeks is challenging. Yeah. So i and my voice is a little more croaky in the morning. So,
0: wow. <laughs> so my singing right. practice singing. is more sure. consistent in the evenings than in the morning. And, but these were rituals. So this is kind of goes back to the ancestral thing. So you were creating rituals for yourself out there. And is that what like, helped keep you grounded in, like, what, what, what did you find? I also, you also made ancestral plates. Like, you said that when you were cooking your food, you were, like, how did, I don't want to, like, say, like, how did that witchy stuff help you? But, I I mean, I'm into it, too. So, but you were, you were performing all of these rituals. How did that, like, bolster your attitude and your, how you were spending out there? Because I didn't see anybody else, like, doing rituals like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that um, I think that ritual has a certain connotation, which isn't necessarily how I would describe it. I mean, I think that it has a lot of connotations, some that fit and some that don't. But I would say, yeah, I mean, definitely I wove into my life a lot of practices that reminded me to be coming from a place of gratitude and connection. Um, I just, you know, like, I've, I've posted videos about making blood pudding and have some people say that I'm, like, doing satanic practices or something, so I'm leery around the term ritual sure, because sure, people sure. can take that and sure. run with it all kinds of weird places. Um,
0: right, so well, you're anyway, like a celebrity yeah, now, I'm- so you you have to, you do have to watch. what. <laughs> no, seriously, because words of people, uh, I'm sure.
1: That's not the word I would use necessarily, I'm but millions. I have a higher profile than I used to.
0: Millions of people have seen you like and all of the skills that I mean do you feel like this was the this is what you've been working your whole life for like all of your skills came to fruition for this time that you were able to survive not
1: just for that time for for similar things for all time it definitely felt like a fruition of a lot of things but I don't like to think of it as like an end goal because then what what do you have after an end goal
0: (laughs) right Sure. so
1: yes it, it was definitely a culmination of um of things that has been a huge part of my life for decades, um, yeah. But I hope that it's not the last time oh, no. that I get to use all of those
0: skills. But... <laughs> I'm sure you're using the skills right now. um So back, I didn't a dance background. So were you a dancer as a child? Because you, no, not at all. Um,
1: I mean, I am someone who. Lo- I mean, I guess yes. I got dragged to ballet at four, and you know, did somersaults in tutus and such. But that's the. <laughs> that's the sum total of my dance background. I mean, I'm, I'm someone who loves dancing and it's taken, you know, I have taken different dance classes, but um, mostly just three form, um, you know, like five rhythms and ecstatic dance and that kind of thing. Um, I wouldn't say it's a background, but just something that's a part of who I am and something that I really love.
0: Rad, I just, uh, (laughs) yay. Um, Okay, so I have all of these questions about cameras. Did they train? Okay, so mm-hmm. it was a crazy show to watch because it was beautifully shot. And I know that some of it was be real and, like, they are a show and they, mm-hmm. they're doing what they do. But the majority of the and stuff. they go
1: over sites with drones occasionally and that kind of thing. So they do, you know, bolster what we do.
0: But you are your own camera person, which I don't, it took me yeah. a while to realize that. I'm like, so do the camera crew, I kept thinking, like, the camera crew gets lunch, like, while they're starving. That's inhumane that's terrible but then i realized like wait 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 no no there's no camera there's no one there right no it's
1: actually literally i mean the show is called alone for a reason yeah it's it's (laughs) quite literal
0: yeah i just didn't believe it at the beginning and then i'm like okay this is real so did they teach you how to use camera or did they tell you like what shots they wanted you to do or where okay
1: yeah no absolutely that's a big part of the prep before going out is um is yeah the the camera training and that happens also in their selection process um, you know when they 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 had for my season I think they had twenty thousand applicants be on a loan um, and then and, and I didn't apply they they called me um, and so you know I kind of got a got a leg up in that whole process but um but then they narrow those twenty thousand down to twenty in my case twenty two people and then they bring us out to New York for a week to do a bunch of different assessments, um, skills assessments, you know, physical tests, psychological tests, and in that, they do a bunch of camera training, and then they're also, um, I think they're also really paying attention to see who cares to dive into the camera training, and who's actually really um, prioritizing learning the camera skills, because you can have all of the survival skills in the world, but if you're not that interested in shooting well, then they don't have a show, you know, so very important that um, that they select people who care to do a good job with the camera training, which, you know, I did. Yeah.
0: Um, I mean, so... it was beautiful. It was beautifully yeah. shot. And even, like, when you're I guess, kept thinking, like, how much time are you spending with the camera? Because the sun is going down and you're chipping through this ice and it's 18 inches thick and you didn't have the axe. You had your cool thing that you chopped the trees down with and, and you're just going and going and going. And I was like, How much time did the camera take to set up? And then you have to take it home and all these other like. Yeah.
1: And that's, that's a huge component. And honestly, you know, I would do it differently now than I did then. I was very, very invested. I mean, really the reason why, and there were a lot of different reasons why I decided to do alone, but a big part of it for me wasn't, you know, it wasn't about the competition. It would have been great to win on some level. Sure. And there were some levels where I didn't actually think that winning would be the thing. Um, but one of my main goals was to demonstrate a different way of approaching survival than what one usually sees on these shows. And, you know, it usually tends to be about like competition and coming from this very antagonistic place with the natural world. And like, Mm. you know, it's me versus nature. And, you know, even one of the shows is called man versus wild, you know, and that is the polar opposite to my perspective and how I wanted to be out there. So for me, it was the opportunity to share my perspective with the world stage and knowing that the, you know, the better I did, the more I, the more I proved that going about things from a place of connection and reciprocity rather than domination and, you know, competition is a viable strategy, is a viable strategy for survival. So, um Because that was such a goal of mine, I really took a lot of time with the filming, and that was a huge part. I would say half of my daylight hours and, you know, calories and time and energy went to getting really good shots. it It would affect what I did, you know. I would choose to do things, like I would process my animals during the day, during the daylight hours, so I could get really good footage of it. When for me, practically speaking, it would be way better for me to leave that animal in my shelter and do it at night because there are tons of things I can be doing out on the land when the sun is out that I can't do in the dark and the sun was only out for four hours a day by the time I left so every daylight hour was so huge and yet I sacrificed a lot of them to get the good camera angles and to set up the good shots and do the good filming and then it was so disappointing to watch the show and see that like way less than 1% of the things I filmed made it onto the show and I could have done so I, I could probably have had Twice as much food if I had had twice as much time. Well, honestly, I'm not sure that that's true because my spot was so resource scarce. But you know, I could have done much better in terms of the survival aspect had I not put so much energy towards filming really well. Um, So you know, I don't want to say that anything is a regret because it was the most amazing experience I've ever had. And had I shifted some things, then maybe other things that I can't know now would have shifted, and that would have been a bummer. But I would do it differently in terms of so much time and attention towards filming. Well, if I was to do it again,
0: how many hours a day did they ask you to film? Because
1: we were we were asked to film absolutely everything we did.
0: Wow! Okay. So what did they
1: give you batteries we can't every time? Really require that. So we had, we had a way to recharge our own batteries. We had a big, like essentially like a big car battery uh-huh. um, that we could recharge some of the batteries ourselves, but then they would also give us a ton of batteries when they came to do medical Med checks. checks. And then figured. also early on when they weren't doing medical checks and when the lake wasn't frozen, they would... Um, they would do what they called blind drops or we would have a dry bag and we would leave our dead batteries and our S D cards with our footage on the shore in a dry bag and they would come by with a boat and grab that bag and replace it with a bunch of fresh batteries. So and, we, but they wouldn't you know, talk they never to wanted us to be without batteries.
0: Of course you not know, No, no, like- we
1: wouldn't even see the boat. We weren't supposed to be anywhere near shore when they did that. They would let us know, okay, we're doing a blind drop today, don't be anywhere on shore, you know, between this hour and this hour.
0: So did you look forward to med checks just cuz they were people like when they started happening or was it like oh med checks I don't want to I don't want to know or
1: no I didn't I didn't really look forward to them I felt like it really interrupted my routine oh. I mean one thing is that a day with a med check was kind of a lost day oh, in terms right. of food no doubt gathering daylight. because they would give me a window when they, when they were coming but they didn't know when exactly so I couldn't be that far from my shelter and my trap lines were a good ways away from my shelter yeah. um, and so it meant, it meant losing a ton of time. It meant like stripping. I mean, they weighed me, I had to strip down in the freezing cold, you know? Um, And it just, when you're so adjusted to being out there on your own, like I wasn't lonely, I was loving it. I like really had this beautiful um, connection and, solitude and um you know having a helicopter land and a whole bunch of people come out and you know poke and prod you and ask you a bunch of questions it's very disruptive and it was a whole different energy and it took me a while after they left to kind of get back to my serenity after sure. everything being so stirred up in this whole different type of interaction um So I know I did not look forward to the medical. I mean, I really had a deep connection with a lot of the people um, who were coming with the film crew. Like, I really appreciated them as people. And so it's not like I didn't enjoy the interaction when they were there. But it was still so disruptive that I would rather have not had it. And towards the end, you know, I was having medical checks a lot more often because I was dangerously underweight and I knew they were very, very concerned about me. So I had the fear of being pulled up you know, all the time. Um, I got my first warning that I was on medical alert on day 40. Whoa. So 33 more days, I was out there wondering when I was going to get pulled and having medical checks way too often that were very disruptive and actually really um, affected my ability to bring in food a lot. So it's like you're underweight, so we're going to check you more often. And it's like, well, the more that you check me, the more underweight I'm going to get because that's the whole day that I lose a lot of my trapping capacity.
0: Uh, How far, you said you're, Traps were a ways away, like a mile. I'm just trying to think calorie wise. No, no. No, not Uh, that far.
1: I mean, it changed all the time. You know, I had different trap lines set up. I was constantly, I mean, every day I was checking and resetting because I had fishing line and not snare wire. Fishing line rabbits can chew through in, you know, half a second. So I was constantly, constantly having to take down and reset up other snares and, you know, the rabbits would be onto me if I had set up a bunch that they had just nipped off in one area, they would stop using that area. So I had to constantly be exploiting other areas. And, you know, so there was no set trap line that was there all the time. It was, you know, constant strategizing and shifting up what I was doing. How many, sometimes, I don't know, probably as far as half a mile, not, not a whole mile away. And, you know, I, my territory, you don't know, how big your zone is. You know, you're not, you have boundaries you're not allowed to cross, but it's not like they're marked, you know, this is way out in the wilderness. So the way that I would know is if I got a little blip on my GPS device.
0: What? Um, and then let's talk about so... the beavers. Oh, oh, I saw the thing when you talked about the beavers, I wanna talk about the beavers. So when everything finally freezes <laughs> up and you're like, all right, I'm gonna go get those beavers and you get over to the beavers, can't get to dang beavers. And then the frozen river and the beeping And the leaving.
1: That
0: was crazy. So did you, was was that the first time that you (laughs) felt, was that the first time you felt real fear or were there other moments where you were like, I could die right now? Was that the only moment that was at like the end of your journey? And you were like, whoa, that
1: was the only moment.
0: Really? You never felt any, like, Mm -hmm. that was a kind of fear that like, I can imagine it's like inside, you're like the pit of your being is like, Oh, whoa. We need to be well, and careful Well, the with get that of frozen here. river was, yeah, I mean that was like
1: I never felt any threats from the outside. Like being on the river, that was my own fault. You know, <sighs> that was that was my own poor choices right in that moment. So I didn't really have anything. So I felt fear, but I also felt like shame at like, wow, that was a really stupid choice. You just really put yourself in jeopardy. Um, but that was the only moment. No, I really, you know, I I understand that. It maybe should have been scary and that um, it would be for a lot of people, but I felt so seen and held and wanted by that place. I just really didn't feel like there was anything out there that wished me harm. And even, you know, I mean, I was out there on top of that frozen river because I'd been following wolf tracks um, across the ice. And, you know, wolves are big predators, but I, you know, I didn't feel like I was in any danger, which is not true you know, like something could have decided that I wasn't even, uh, you know, an easy meal. But even so, I mean, my deepest desire was to be a deep part of that landscape. And that is part of that is part of living wild and wild systems. And so in that way, I mean, I'm sure that had I been attacked by a wolf in the moment, it would have been very scary. But you know, better to go out that way as part of a beautiful interaction in a wild place than to get taken out in a car accident sure. you know did you have an so, arrow knocked so i wasn't
0: did you have an arrow knocked uh, when you were um, walking that,
1: the... no i didn't have an arrow knock i'm trying to remember if i even had my bow with wow. me i probably did because i brought my bow everywhere but no i definitely didn't have an arrow knocked
0: because you were just I walking and
1: having my bow with me on that trip.
0: you were just yeah, experiencing I mean, the know, beauty uh, of the place it's not that
1: common for wolves to take out people and especially in an environment where they don't people. It's not like we're on the menu. It would be an unusual animal that's like, what is this thing I've never seen before? I guess I'll figure it out by eating it. (laughs) You know, generally there would be a curiosity. You know, the place where you see problem animals is places where humans have been encroaching into wild places a lot and affecting wild animals' ability to get game. You know, like bears attacking people. That happens usually in, like, campgrounds and such and places where they're used to associating humans with food. Um, so yeah, I mean, which is not to say that, you know, that they mightn't be motivated that way, but it just wasn't, I didn't feel in my gut that I was in danger in those ways. Right. So just
0: from the, I had one moment
1: when I was coming back. Yeah. Just from standing (laughs) on top of water, you know, of, of ice that was way thinner than it should have been to me, be standing on top of a frozen river. I just didn't realize. And for the for the you know listening audience right now, what she's referring to is a night pretty far out. I think it was night 70, maybe 69 or 70. Um, I, I had hiked out across the ice. I was way out of my bounds. I didn't realize that because the GPS signals and satellite signals are um, really bad out there. So the message telling me that I was way out of bounds didn't come until I was already far out. Um, But it was kind of dusk. I couldn't really, you know, the light was starting to go. And I was in this area on this lake, which is this huge lake um, where the ice was starting to be. Uh, not flat but kind of bubbled and I was curious about it and I thought that it must have been you know, vegetation or something and I didn't realize until I was already pretty far out that the reason why it wasn't flat there is because it's actually a a river and so it was like the bubbling flow of the river that had frozen and it was not very thick ice and um, because that's what happens, ice that's on top of flowing water doesn't, doesn't freeze very quickly so it's a really dangerous, really sketchy place to be and I just you know and that it was so enthralled it by was dust the, the dust yeah so
0: you, they couldn't they have can't, come
1: to help me they couldn't have flown the helicopter they,
0: yeah they wouldn't have not that able. they
1: could have gotten there i mean if i had gone through ice on top of a fast-moving frozen river there would have been nothing they could do i would have been <sighs> stuck under the ice anyway and the helicopter would have been a non-issue <laughs> when i knew that you know that's that was that's the you know i've done a lot of wilderness trips in my day and I've never in my life had a button I could push for someone to come save me so <laughs> I, th- I, that wasn't really part of my reality out there like I knew that everything I was doing was a calculated risk and that you know the chance of rescue was a pretty remote one so that that didn't figure into my thinking out there wow. um,
0: that's why you're so, a superhero yeah. you're fearless um, you're a fearless feminist <laughs> superhero I'm
1: not fearless but that those aren't the things that I'm most afraid of I guess
0: Well, okay, so let's switch gears. What are the top five most beautiful things you saw up there that you could, there's probably got to be more than five, Mm. but that you hadn't seen in any of your wilderness journeys that you were just so majestic that, that they didn't show on the show. I mean, they showed a lot of the Northern Lights and I kept being like, is that, that's crazy. That was, wow. Um. They are
1: crazy. <laughs> yeah, and that's, I mean, that area, Yellowknife, um, in the Northwest Territories, is um, a worldwide destination for Northern Lights tourism. I mean, the streets are awash with tourists um, to come there to watch the Northern Lights. So, yeah, all that footage was very real. Uh, so, yeah, the Northern Lights, definitely. And I'd seen Northern Lights before. Um, I'd lived in northern Ontario for a brief time um, and seen some pretty spectacular Northern Lights there. But, yeah, that was those were really, really amazing. Um, the night that I was out on the ice, the night that they showed the footage of where I was trying to get through the ice and realizing that it, in the course of the couple of days that I hadn't been out on the ice because there'd been a really intense storm, a really intense storm that drops the temperature about 20 degrees with just whipping winds. And that storm, the ice went from about four inches thick to about you know 18 to 24 inches thick. Um, so I had been able to get through the ice with the same technique I was using before that. And then all of a sudden there was no way. But that, ice, that, that that night, that sunset was the most epically beautiful, awe-inspiring evening of my entire life. And it was really frustrating to me that what they showed instead was me failing to get through the ice. And they inserted bleeps. I'm fairly certain I wasn't actually cussing. Um, I don't know for sure, maybe I was, but they, but they made it look like a hardship, and it was one of the most amazing nights in my life, such that like, I just fully surrendered after that, and was like, if they pick me up tomorrow, I don't care, because I got to have this night out on the ice. It was this experience where I was out there, and the ice was completely scoured clean, to just a mirror surface from this really intense storm we had had for days and days with heavy winds, and you know, like scouring the ice with snow. Yeah. Um And the sun was going down, and because the storm was just clearing, there were a lot of clouds, so the color was really intense. And the sky was just this amazing hot pink, orange, you know, beautiful colors. And then I'm standing on this ice that is so smooth that it's reflecting the sunset back at me. So it's like I'm standing in the middle of the sunset. You know, I'm completely surrounded by sunset colors everywhere. And then the night was just so gorgeous once I figured out that I couldn't get through that ice. I just decided to go further out onto the lake and just level in it. And I got further out into the ice in an area where the the pressure of the ice freezing so fast had cracked the surface of the lake. So it's all of these different pieces of ice that had all been kind of pushed up by the pressure of the cracking. And so they were all of these little pieces. that were all sitting at a different angle to the sky. So each one was catching a different color. Like Superman. and and reflecting that back at me, it was yeah, yeah, only sunset. Oh, like, sunset. All Superman, ice colors. cave, it was sunset time. So epically unbelievable. And then as I'm out there on the ice, the moon is rising, oh. and it's like exactly half of a moon and exactly vertical. So that's rising up over the island as this amazing. It was just the most amazing experience of my entire life, and you know, why I mean, didn't they show like that? You musting with beauty. Do you get to keep the footage? Well, no, because they want to show the drama. No, no, you don't get it. You put footage. the footage. So, honestly, I didn't bring the cameras oh. out there. <gasps> I mean, I did take footage. No, I did take footage of the moon rising, but when I went out to where there was the puzzle pieces, I left the camera set up by that hole, and I just wandered out by myself, which I wasn't really supposed to do, but it was, like, too epic and amazing. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. Um, you know, they could have showed, but there was a lot of footage of it. There just wasn't the footage of the like me on the puzzle piece part of the ice right. um but because that's not you know they're trying to build the drama and this is the last couple of days and so they're trying to pitch this like you know battle to the end between me and jordan and um you know so just the beauty and wonder um most of my most epic moments i took great footage of but they didn't show I they should give um, you i also that had footage. A, a moment yeah yeah they don't they don't do that um it would jeopardize their show i think is there their perspective on it so yeah those were those were i mean i could go on there are a bunch of them but
0: um oh, more beautiful moments no <laughs> no please what, what are your other epic like things that were i mean because that's oh, there
1: were so many
0: you yeah, just pick a random one <laughs> um, the,
1: the, the whole place yeah okay so so one moment that was really really profound early on um uh, i mean it, the whole thing was that like early on when we first launched it was you know, we had just been having our first intense frost, Um, so everything was changing. The leaves were all changing, so this super, super stark landscape, you know, a huge lake that's like a steel gray most of the time, and mostly bare rock, you know, this really amazing granite, and huge towering cliffs, you know, vertical cliffs, and the whole landscape is so enormous, you can't even begin to wrap your mind around it, so like this super stark landscape with these amazing, just flame colors of fall, you know, and I had this moment after being out there for, you know, going on a couple weeks and not bringing in any food besides just a couple handfuls of berries and recognizing that rather than feeling weaker and weaker, I'm feeling better and better. And there was just this moment where I realized that I was shifting on a physiological level where i was learning to be fed by beauty instead of by food and just that like that all hitting me in one moment standing on this rocky precipice looking out over this landscape looking out over this lake and recognizing that even though i'm starving and i don't know how long i can keep going on starving like there's no place in the world i would rather be or anything i would rather be doing in that moment and just that epic beauty being so profound that it just brought tears to my eyes you know i just like there's no way to all of the emotions in my body and it just came through in the form of tears um, and recognizing that like I could, I could live on beauty now and I could do that for a really long time and had every intention of doing so. So that was a really profound moment. Um, I had a moment where I was at my cabin working on it and heard, and heard a big kerfuffle of birds, you know, like I, I was really keyed into birds out there. Um, and I knew their patterns, and so I could tell that there was something unusual happening. And um, and going out to where I heard this and seeing just kind of a classic bird language moment, which was all of these birds in a shape that we call in bird language a parabola mm-hmm. around the top of this tree and looking in the top of that tree and seeing a huge... Um, predatory bird up there uh, a northern goshawk i believe it was which is specifically an avian predator they take out birds and so they're something that birds really react to so having that moment of like being keyed in enough to the landscape to think something's going on something big is happening and then going out there and finding the source of it and getting to see this amazing bird that i've never seen before in my life that was a really profound one um i had a really profound encounter with a fox um that was really beautiful um Yeah, I mean, seeing tracks, seeing wolverine tracks, you know, I'd never seen wolverine tracks, seeing lynx tracks, that was amazing, wolf tracks, I mean, all of these wildlife encounters that were creatures that I haven't had the opportunity to live in the territory of before. So, and even though the lynx tracks and the wolverine tracks were like dogging my trap line and potentially major competitors for my food, it was still so amazing to see that, that it it felt worth it.
0: And So you never, Um, it sounds like you just didn't feel alone at all. (laughs)
1: like Mm. you were
0: interacting how could i I was surrounded by life yeah that it was it's like a completely different journey than other people took did the camera help you apparently
1: which i didn't realize until watching it yeah Yeah, i had no idea how different my journey was to other journeys until i was watching the show and thinking oh my god i had the time of my life and these people are out here experiencing the exact same conditions in the exact same place and suffering so hard right that was a really profound realization for me just how I mean I knew what a big difference attitude made and and like we talked about you know like a lot of my preparations were strategizing routines for myself to help me stay in a place of connection and gratitude but it wasn't until watching other journeys you know other folks on my same season that I really got on a deeper level how profound a difference that
0: was. It must have it killed you to watch Jordan sit there and complain and be like oh I'm starving with 200 pounds of moose <laughs> Look at this. I thought that was so funny but it did. I mean my
1: interpretation of it wasn't that he was complaining as much as that the show was choosing to ah. take those moments out of his footage okay. to make it seem like he and I were neck and neck. Right. Um. So you know I have enough experience in knowing how many things I filmed and the things that they chose to show of my things in a way that misrepresented my journey that I believe that that is what they were doing with with him too not misrepresented but just you know picking and choosing to get a certain impression
0: right to Um, get the story that they wanted.
1: Jordan was nowhere near as poorly off yeah exactly
0: yeah because they're I mean they are it is a tv show and they are creating a story did you did the camera become like a friend to you did you when you were oh absolutely so it was like it's because it it feels like you're talking to me when I'm watching We're talking to us Mm -hmm. or, you know, the audience. Yeah, no, I was
1: very aware of that. And, you know, and I don't know how different the sense of isolation would have been if I didn't have that relationship with the camera. I mean, and again, so much of my intention was around showing something beautiful to the world. That was a big part of my mission. And so in that way, I engaged with the audience perhaps more than other folks might have, because I wanted to draw you in. I wanted, you know, I know that a lot of these shows kind of what they do is like, look at this person and all their survivor skills and they're, they're such a badass and, you know, and like put you on a pedestal, <laughs> pedestal. And that that's not what I wanted. I wanted the viewers to identify with me and see themselves out there yeah. and doing the same thing and give them that experience. And so I engaged with the camera in that way. And, and, you know, to me, the camera was an audience that I was talking to. And I think that that did a lot for my, you know, mental health out there. Because while I knew that obviously you weren't actually there and interacting with me and it wasn't in real time, I also knew that I was going to be sharing this. And so that kept me feeling like I was still part of human community as well as the wild community out there, even though yeah. it wasn't actually true at the time. Um And so, yeah, so the camera, you know, it was a mixed blessing. Obviously, it was where a lot of my time and energy went, and a lot of that felt wasted because they showed so little of my footage. But at the same time, the camera absolutely was a companion and um, kept me aware of the companionship of the whole world of humans that were out there and eventually going to be sharing this with me.
0: And you shared a lot of really personal stuff. I was um, specifically very connected to when you were talking about – the money versus not the money and what do you want to do and the self-care on those last days. And you were talking about what you would do with the money and that you've made relationships, you've made choices for your career and for your life that haven't included other things that you would consider like adopting and all of that whole monologue section. I was just like, wow. I felt like, Oh, same thing. The sacrificing of femininity to, to try to get ahead in a certain way and then you look back and you're in your 40s and it's like what did I do I don't have a kid anyway I don't know if that's where you're coming but that's what I felt from it like and I felt that for me I was like oh god I'm 45 I'm 45 and look at my choices and I'm not gonna have a kid and wouldn't it be great to adopt but I don't have the money to do that and like how do you share with the world and feel like you have things to share and then there are choices that you made so those aren't the opportunities that you get and etc. So I felt like really connected to that. And then also when you're talking about your mom and all that stuff and your childhood, and I know they put that into, you know, create a character for you. Um, But do you Mm -hmm. feel like the character that they put out, does that, do you feel represented? Do you feel like they got you? Or do you feel like, well, they tried? Yeah, that's a great
1: question. Um, The things that you're referring to, yes. And it's interesting because i still was really so there's a bunch a bunch to say about that one is that they really encouraged us to be really vulnerable and talk about you know what was true for us emotionally and part of my choice to do that was was that and i think that you often see people you know a lot of things up for people and processing a lot of your life choices and that was true for me too but also it was particularly specific advice of one friend who is a friend who has done the show before i actually have a lot of friends who have done this cuz those are kind of the circles that i that i move in and he told me you know like this journey is so intense that you it's really hard to do just for yourself and you want to find something you know a goal that's about someone that you love or something that you love or are really attached to to make the journey bigger than yourself and And so that's part of what prompted that conversation was my looking to that. And certainly in terms of finances, you know, I'm a person who has chosen to live under the poverty line for most of my life because I've just always prioritized different things. I've prioritized freedom and, you know, being able to have wild adventures over financial security and that's fine. But one of the goals that would make, you know, pushing it to get a bunch of money worth it would be something like being able to adopt because, again, you know, I wanted a family so bad for so much of my life and have had a lot of angst around that not happening. At the same time, it feels representative of, like, my life before alone and not as much now because I had a lot of time to think about and process those choices while I was out there and recognizing that, like, I'm so grateful to have the life that I have and the opportunities that I've had. And had I had a family, I probably wouldn't have gone out on a loan. And (laughs) that was the most amazing experience of my entire life. And I wouldn't trade it for anything right now. And you know, I made those choices from the authentic place that I was in when those choices were up for me. So how would I go back and change that now? So I processed a lot of my regrets while I was out there. And so when I came back out, and saw that footage, I was thinking, that doesn't represent me.
0: Mm.
1: But the truth is that it did represent me at one time, just not as much anymore, because things have shifted. And I would also say that I'm I'm someone who has dealt with a lot of sorrow and angst around not having had a family, but I don't think that I am a person who really, like, I'm a person with a very positive, forward-thinking attitude, and not someone who tends to go into, like, woe-is-me places. Right. And so I feel like Focusing on that maybe painted me a little bit more in that light, um, but it definitely. I mean, anyone who knows me knows that knows that it's true that like not having had a family has been one of my major sorrows in life. So that's accurate. The part that really bothered me that feels less accurate is when they talked about um, they they did some uh, some careful editing to create some sentences that I didn't actually speak. Wow. And that was really frustrating. And that is really to disappointing that, you know, to hear. I've never, because you
0: filmed yeah. so much and the, stuff. The
1: one place that that was true, yeah. They, they had me say at one point towards the very end, I've never had enough money to eat well, and that's why I'm here. And that is, like, nauseating to Oof. me to hear because that's not true, and I felt like it painted a very different picture of who I am. and um, And it basically made me say that I was there for the money because I was desperate for money because I don't have enough money to eat otherwise, which is absurd um and it is definitely true that i have lived on a lot less money than you know like well under the poverty line and that that has affected some of my food choices in terms of like being able to buy all of the healthiest organic food and whatever i want all the time and yet the way they made it say that is like that i've been so poor that i'm starving and that that was my motivation for being on the show and that was like a complete 180 and the furthest thing from the truth so in that way I felt very misrepresented and um, you know I've had people write me saying like oh my gosh I'm so sorry I hope you can afford to eat now and I'm like oh my god (laughs) that's awful and you know I think that overall you know that one part so they, they do interviews with you before you go when you come back and when they come and do medical checks and sometimes they use that those audio clips and overlay it onto your time out as if it's what you're saying in the moment sure and that's what happened with that clip and it wasn't that was that was a moment when i like went out to the lake to sing this beautiful song of hope and joy and instead they did this overlay of audio saying i'm so poor me i'm so poor i can't afford to eat and i'm just here so that i can afford to get a decent meal for once and um (laughs) i think that most people most everyone i feel like who has written me which is like hundreds thousands of people um that part of the message is not what they can like I think it's clear of like my energy and most of the things that like my joy and my positivity were what came through more and the contrast of that one sentence was um you know was big enough that they don't even see that as part of my journey, it seems like most people who write and I hope that that's true. Yeah. Um but yeah, that was that's a sore spot for me. That's the one major sore spot
0: for me. And, um, and with and the whole fair whole enough. Um Uh, Cat Kat Plank is a person. She wanted to ask a question. Um, Your master's degree is in what? And uh, she says… Environmental science. Environmental science. Sorry. I'll let you finish. Oh, yeah. So, she said Mm -hmm. she's personally curious about your background, so environmental science, and it's obvious that you have mad skills that are extremely niche, um, but how did you decide to learn those kinds of skills and… So I guess it would be when you were when you were nineteen, or was it when you were younger, even that you you already said at the beginning you went into a, a a skills program, a wilderness program when you were nineteen. Was that when you started this journey into ancestral skills, or was it before that that you had a great interest, even like as a young child? Yeah, that's
1: a great question. Definitely, as a young child, um, I was always super fascinated like all of my favorite books you know like I had a book about Ishii when I was a kid and all of the little house books and Laura Ingalls um, Wilder's story and Island of the Blue Dolphins like those were the books that I loved and you know Hatchet and that kind of thing so I was obsessed with these things as a kid and like all of my childhood games were me as Karana on the land like I would pick red clover blossoms and you know put them in a hole in the ground because I was saving up food for the winter you know that was that was what I was obsessed with but I didn't think that those things were you know I thought that that was from the past and not something that was available to me so um so I you know I always did a lot of things with my hands I was into sewing and knitting and crocheting and that kind of thing and like the hand that were available to me but I didn't really have other avenues um you know like I grew up in a rural place but you know we weren't we weren't we grew strawberries and we grew a small garden, but you know, we weren't like harvesting wild food or anything. This wasn't in my, wasn't in my background and how I was raised up. Um, but I was always looking for that stuff. And when I was, um, I think a freshman or a sophomore, I think a sophomore in college. And I went to school for biology and environmental studies. So like a deep connection to the natural world was always a part of me. And my parents were both outdoor people. My dad was an endurance runner doing hundred mile trail runs, and my mom was a backpacker and in the Sierra club. So I spent a lot of time hiking and, you know, out in wild places as a kid. Um, But it was when I was a sophomore in college that a friend of mine gave me a book, um, The Tracker by Tom Brown Jr., Um, Where he kind of talks about using these skills in his childhood um, coming into relationship with the land and that was really inspiring to me and so when I wanted to do a field course, one summer I specifically looked for one um, that might have some some of those skills and found um, found one that had instructors who had taught some ancestral skills. And so I chose the course based on that. And that's not what the the focus of the course was, but it was a big focus for me because that was where my interest lay. And then they told me about a skills gathering that they had been to that was all focused on ancestral skills. And so I went to that and that was um, when I was 19. And so that was what really Showed me that in fact this was something that was still available that people were still doing, and then from that point on, I just threw myself into it wholeheartedly and definitely kind of had like fantasies about running off naked into the wilderness, you know, with just my knife and living there forevermore. And um, my first gathering was when I was introduced to buckskin clothing, and that completely changed my life and became my biggest goal was to you know learn to tan hides and make clothing for myself and um, so yeah, from that point on, anytime I wasn't in school, I was I was out in the woods by myself doing skill stuff, um, or going to gatherings whenever I could, and spending summers on some land in Idaho with a bunch of folks who were teaching and practicing skills, and you know organizing Stone Age trips and harvesting wild food and just you know learning as much as I could in every possible way. Um, and you know then I had then I had a period in my early twenties where I kind of where I was involved in a relationship and with my first husband and um, that wasn't really the life that he wanted to live and I felt like I ended up compromising a lot on how how I was living for for love you know for that relationship and um, that was how I ended up in grad school actually was kind of trying like not not being happy in the normal working world and I was working you know interesting jobs I was doing environmental ed and working as a naturalist in a state park and doing cool stuff but it just wasn't me it wasn't the life that i wanted i wanted something so much more wild and rugged and um really had this period of feeling like i compromised so much of myself and lost myself and became really deeply depressed and um even suicidal we have like um, the same
0: story it's tripping me out but keep going
1: (laughs) (laughs) wow yeah yeah it's a i think it's a common one um so yeah so i spent a lot of my 20s compromising on what I wanted to do. And then eventually, um, I was in grad school when I kind of, I don't know, like came to a place where I realized that like my soul was dying and I couldn't, I couldn't do what I was doing anymore and ended up, you know, leaving my husband, quitting grad school. I, I had enough, credits to get my degree but I quit my thesis so I ended up graduating with a non-thesis science degree Mm -hmm. which means you can't really work in academia you can do a lot of other things but you're not going to ever go on to be a professor or anything um or a researcher but um but I was pretty clear that I didn't want to anyway at that point so yeah so I ended up you know quitting grad school leaving my husband and moving away from my like you know easy house outside of town and running off to northern ontario um with someone that i met at a friend's wedding who was about to go out on this crazy journey and um living up there for a while until the canadian government kicked us out <laughs> and from that moment on just really absolutely devoted to living my life and not compromising on that again and living a much wilder less conventional life um but yeah i i came to that through Compromising and trying to, you know, quote be normal and live a normal life for a while, and just being absolutely miserable and feeling trapped and, um yeah. And you, you gave know, up learned, the safety. Learned the
0: hard way. You gave up the safety for your gave truth. Up for safety for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, I did yeah. the same thing. I was married for a long time, and and I left him, and all. It's very, very similar story. Very depressed, trying, to blah, 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 and now I do what I want. Yay! So I'm glad that you. Yeah, I, and like- I
1: think it's, it's been gratifying because
0: yeah i just have i have a couple more questions for you because we've been going for an hour and i don't want to take up too much of your time because you're so awesome but i mean i I want to take up all of your time but i don't i also don't want to you know so finish your thing and then i have like two more questions
1: oh i was just gonna say that at the time i think it was hard you know it was like quite devastating for my husband we're still very good friends he's a wonderful man but you know i think at the time he never really believed me about Mm -hmm. why i was dissatisfied and how i said i wanted to live um and you know because I was not doing those things, I had been compromising, so it's like, yeah, you say that, but but I think now, and especially after alone, now he's like, okay, yeah, I, I get it now. I get that what you were saying all along of what you actually needed and wanted, yeah, it makes more sense now.
0: 73 gratifying
1: <laughs> so it's, it's in that way, but like, yeah.
0: Uh, so have you ever thought of going back to your Arctic Peninsula like during the summer? I would love to
1: yeah, yeah, no,
0: I love to. I mean, once once I have a little bit more
1: space in my life, that is definitely um, a very much a goal. I intend I intend to do so. I also intend to spend some time on that lake places where one can actually catch fish and just <laughs> gorge on trout.
0: <laughs> yeah, I saw those beautiful fish. Um, okay, so yeah. my last question, it might be totally inappropriate, but and I can cut it out <laughs> of the interview if you want. Okay, the way I came to the show, because I, I'm a stand-up comedian. I watched the show mm-hmm. and I was like, I don't, I don't watch porn. It's not my thing. So I'm not into it. But mm-hmm. I was watching <laughs> alone because it hits all of my triggers. Like, it's like emotional lumberjacks crying. It's like survival starving. <laughs> it's like all the Laura Ingalls Wilder stuff I love. So I made this like big long joke. That I've done on stage about how it's my porn and I I masturbate to it when I'm alone, <laughs> quote unquote, right? So my question is, That's great. when you're out there and we're at the base of humanity, was there any like sexy time? Did it not even enter your head at all, or was there any like? I mean, were you so? I'm just because I'm, I'm thinking about ancestral skills and I'm thinking about people used to live out there and babies were made Yeah, and this is a part of being human <laughs>
1: right. I mean I was isolated the whole time um, but yeah yeah, no for sure I mean I don't I, I think probably differently than you experience it because to me it's my norm you know I think that often things that people eroticize are things that are like outside of their norm and therefore exciting and so in that way that that experience wasn't, but there is definitely something about that like that primal energy of being out on, you know, in a wild place and um experience things in this way. It's very, you know, it's very physical. It's very rooted in the body. And it's, you know, the like life and death and like getting down to the nitty gritty of life. And sure, there's there's a sexual energy in there. And uh and yeah, no, that like towards the end where i had been starving and just so you know like i tend to be kind of a no hold barred kind of person i'm, I'm pretty um <laughs> i'm a pretty open book so this doesn't feel inappropriate but um you can edit it out if you think no no hey i'm fine with it but, but, yeah, i watched no. the whole
0: poop i watched the whole poop video and i was like scintillated <laughs> like i watched right. the whole 22-minute yeah, poop yeah. video i was like all right,
1: right. I mean, <laughs> yeah no i tend to just talk about the stuff that he's talking about so whatever but yeah no i mean i would say that like that Uh, there wasn't, like, more sexual energy for me out there than there would be otherwise. But it wasn't absent um, until towards the end when I had been really starving for a long freaking time. Because, you know, like, starting to digest your own muscles kind of takes it out of (laughs) you. Right, right. There's actually a moment where when they were out for a medical check and... uh, I, I somehow like this happens to me where I will say something and not realize the connotation of it afterwards. But there was something where I like invited one of the people to spend the night in my cabin with me, one the, which like obviously it was not going to happen. But like, and like and the, the film people were kind of like, oh, should we like be present for this conversation? And then I was like, oh, that did sound like that, didn't it? But uh,
0: <laughs> Do you want to spend the night but, um, in my yeah, that, wilderness that was cabin?
1: Funny. <laughs> I think it was like just after I had made the bed or something. They're like, "Oh yeah, that looks pretty cozy." And I'm like, "Heck yeah, it is. You know, try it out." Um, <laughs> something like that. But I always, I always laugh that everybody was like, everybody turned a little bit red after that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's. Well, I, this has been amazing. Can you like plug Bucks Begin Revolution? Give us your website, your YouTube. What you you know? How people can. Like, do you have a book? Can have you read? Have you written a book yet? When's your book coming out? Like, um, I have. I have several
1: book projects in the works right now. Um, so yeah, there's a lot that I can say about all of that. So my business is Buckskin Revolution, and um, you know the mission of my business is to empower people with the skills to you know, tend to their needs with their own two hands and from the landscape around them. And so it's about, it's about ancestral skills. And it's also about applying those skills, like having those skills, even if we don't use them, that knowing that we have them changes how we are in our daily life and comes has us coming from a place that is uh, feeling empowered rather than feeling trapped in the system and feeling like a whole person who is actually using the the physiology that we evolved to have Um, and also you know just recognizing ourselves as wild creatures and with a profound relationship to the wild so having things in our daily lives whatever they might be that remind us of our connection to landscapes outside you know you might not need to go out and forage your own food every day but could you have a little you know a buckskin bag hanging on your wall where you know that it came from a wild creature and therefore it's kind of an anchor for the wild in your life even if you're living in an apartment building in the bronx you know wherever you find yourself can you can you integrate a little bit of the wild into your life Um, So, you know, connection to the landscape around us, connection to who we are on a deeper level, connection to our human community, connection to our ancestors, um, and skills for actually land-based living, you know, um, growing, storing um, food, medicines, all of those things. So um, and part of my mission really is to spread those as far and wide as I can. And that's why I've been focusing more on, um, you know, videos and online courses and writing recently. And I, you know, have traveled around the country teaching this stuff for the past several decades. Um, That's been a huge part of my life and that's really rewarding to me and I intend to keep doing it. But these days since the bigger platform um, and the publicity of a loan, A lot more people are interested in what I'm doing so I'm trying to um, to branch into the video stuff to make it more accessible to people who couldn't come and do a class in person so there's a lot of ways to be involved in what I'm doing Um, I have an online skills gathering happening right now last week is going to be the last week to register for that but that's uh, an entire you know weeks worth of classes spread out over ten weeks of all of the skills like we're talking about all of the background that um, that you know prepares you for more time in the wild and more land-based living um also i have a patreon membership which is a, a crowdfunding platform but it's a membership based so you're you know um, you're part of a team, basically the Buckskin Revolution Patreon team. So that is a huge part of allowing me to do a lot of the videos and writing. And eventually I'm hoping to be able to hire people to help me with my video editing because I can only – I'm doing everything myself right oh, now. And there's yeah. only so much I can produce. So I could get a lot more out there if I had more support and um, able to, to hire folks to support me in that. So check me out on Patreon. That is www.patreon.com backslash wonia buckskin revolution and you get all kinds of benefits for that and it's a lot more interactive and reciprocal and you know exclusive content and you know merchandise for certain things your name in my books and getting to ask questions and a lot more a lot more interaction um so i really encourage people to do that that's a huge part of what supports me right now and being able to do this stuff um, the mailing list on my website will get you um, in my system so that you get my newsletters, which has my teaching schedule. Um, obviously, most of my in-person teaching has been canceled um, due to COVID, but I will be getting back to that. And I also do mentoring through um, Sage FM, which is a which is a mentoring platform where folks can call in and do. Um, live video and phone consultations and so that's a way to you know get one-on-one help with your skills um and you know like i can walk you through brain tanning you can ask questions about alone you can ask questions about i just had a great conversation last week about how to keep a positive attitude in the face of challenges and adversity um so yeah i'm really trying to do what i can to make a positive impact on the world and um also you know social justice is a part of of buckskin revolution and a part of the revolution and so trying to make these skills more accessible to more people because i feel like you know there are a lot of people who are disenfranchised and don't have access to even just getting out into the woods and nature so trying to do what i can to spread access in more ways so that more people you know feel empowered and feel like they have some control over their their lives and their choices and they're not just cons in a system that they don't understand Um, and, you know, can't control, which, like, I get because that's how I felt in my 20s when I was trying to plug into the system, and it wasn't working for me. Um, You're amazing. Instagram and Facebook. (laughs) Thank you. So, yeah, there are so many ways to be involved in what I'm doing. And, yes, I do have a couple books. My Patreon members have access to my writing before it's published. Mm. For many years, I was selling the rough draft of my book about buckskin clothing. Right now, the only way that you can get that is if you're a Patreon member at certain levels. You get that rough draft copy of my book that's close to published but not there yet. Um, you get that for free at certain levels, or you get to buy it for a discounted rate at other levels. So, um Yeah, working hard to pump a lot of good resources out there into the world so we have a society of happier, healthier, more whole, more empowered, more inspired, and inspiring people. Yay.
0: This has been like (laughs) the (laughs) highlight of my whole, like, I can't even tell you. This is a dream come to fruition. I never thought, you're a real person doing real things. (laughs) Of course Ah. I
1: am. Yeah. There are all, The other things we didn't get
0: into are like your philosophies on entitlement and like feminism and stuff, but maybe another time. This has been incredible, and I thank you so much for your time, and I, and I can't wait to see what happens next um, with you and Buckskin Revolution and everything else online, and everybody join the Patreon, and thank, thank, thank you. you so much for talking to me on Mutiny Radio. Uh, and I I'm hope so that. So glad we can, to.
1: Thank you so much for asking. Yeah,
0: I hope we can promote anything that you're doing in the future. Again, this has been like, thank you so much. Have a beautiful rest of your day. Enjoy <laughs> the sunshine. Thank you. And I thought the cat was alive. I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's that's okay. Yeah,
0: no problem. Right. Well, yep. thanks so much for your time. And I hope to talk to you again someday thanks, soon. Fam. Have a great day. Bye. Sounds great. Yep, we'll be in touch. Yep. All right. Bye. <laughs> That—that was Winia Dawn, Winia Thabo. Everyone, you can see her online, on uh, on Facebook. Her fan page is uh, Winia Dawn, and that has been an awesome interview. And I'm so proud of myself because I didn't cry. I didn't cry. All right. So call me Tim, everyone. I've been Pam Benjamin. That was Winia Dawn. This is MutinyRadio.fm. Hey, hit up our uh, Venmo. Mutiny Radio, all one word.
2: of dumbass. But never mind that. Don't follow me now. Follow me later. I mean, for right now, ah, let's watch a full-length movie on
3: YouTube with my speaker L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. What a bunch of letters. Welcome to Let's Full-length movie on YouTube with Mike Spiegelman and Carl. Hi, Carl. o y That is our acronym, and you can find our podcasts with that. You can find our Twitter feed with that acronym. You can find us on our YouTube channel, which is terrific. And, oh, uh, well, I don't know. We're on Facebook as Let's Watch a Full-Length Movie on YouTube. We uh, stream our show first on mutinyradio.fm. Which is uh, on the internet, internet radio. Yeah. And you can hear us every Sunday, two PM Pacific Standard Time. You wanna make a day of it? Why don't you listen to the show before us at noon? It's called The Edge of Insanity. It's hosted by Paul Brumbaugh. And Carl, what's the movie
2: today? What are we watching? We are gonna watch the taking of the Pelham one, two, three. But nineteen ninety eight, okay? Yeah. Not nineteen seventy four. Not the current one. Wait, what about you? The taking of oh, the Pelham weird. one, two,
3: three, 1998. So, the one with Denzel, it was not the first remake, it was second remake of this movie. Yeah, it was this, one in 1990.
2: That's right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, you want to oh, a... Pelham is P E L H A M, and you want to write out the letters one, two, three in uh, the English words. And then put in 1998 so you get the right one, because there's choices. And we like the channel Gregorian Barada, B-U-R-A-D-A, Gregorian Barada. All
3: right, sounds good. So we want you to watch this movie and listen to our podcast at the same time to truly experience us. Uh, and we also, we have no sponsors today, but we want you to make a donation to Mutiny Radio for being the best. And yeah. we give it up, of course, to uh, Pam, Bam Benjamin. the Bam, editor, Pen- Bam Benjamin. <laughs> for making everything happen. So I want you to go to Venmo and donate some money to at Mutiny Radio. And then that's all. And also we want you to subscribe to the Edge of the Sanity because not only is uh, Paul from the uh Show hosts the show before us. He's also going to do the countdown for us today, the countdown us hitting Go. We want you to hit the link for the Taking a Pen, Pell Ham 123, XBiz MP3, Uh, hit pause, move the slider to 000, and when Paul says Go, we want you to hit the play button with us. Uh, Of course, uh, Paul's not here right now, so we do have the next best thing, the Paul Brumbot. Uh, (laughs) Carl, if you may? Yes. Here comes the Brumbot. Alright, so let's get this started. Really I, am, I am ready. It was a live show. We're very excited to have Paul here as our Countdown gentleman. Let's get ready to Brumbaugh. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get ready to Brumbaugh! Okay, so, let's get ready to Brumbaugh. And now, what you've all been waiting for, Master of the Descending Numerals, the Countdown King himself. Would you please welcome... Mr. Paul Brumbaugh. All right, guys, you know the drill. Put that finger right over that triangle and do it in three, two, one, go. Uh, I love how uh, fake movies, uh, when you watch my TV, they'll say this film has been edited for content and for mm-hmm. time restrictions. Yeah. As if you're a real movie. Right. Right? If it was this written, it was made for
2: TV. Yeah.
3: Yeah, so what's up with that? Uh-oh, too soon, Carl. Oh, no, that's not the World Trade Center. There it is. No, oh, there's no, the World Trade Center.
2: Over the bridge. We saw it.
3: Yeah, in 1998, You started off in the New York skyline. You know what's going to go next.
2: That's right. There was the uh, 96 bombing had happened.
3: Right. Well, this is the subway system. This is the famous 1974 Walter Matthau movie about – I never really understood it, Carl. A bunch of criminals decide to hold up a subway. Yeah, they uh, the Pelham line. It's uh one the Pelham,
2: it's the one train, the two train, or the express, the three.
3: Oh, oh wow, Gosh, they're really ambitious. They're taking all the trains. Yep. Mm-hmm. Why they sound like my commute, huh? I gotta take the Pelham one, and then two, and then three. <laughs> By the way, this font is courtesy of Blender Magazine, nineteen ninety seven. Look at
2: that, that's 90s font. Yeah, it is 90s font. It really is.
3: Yeah, I guess who? and Lorraine Bracco. Yep, that's right. The oh, so she's the Sopranos therapist. Yes, yeah, this is clearly
2: uh, pre-Sopranos, and uh, it is also, uh, I think it's pre-Goodfellas. It must be.
3: No, no. Ninety you were talking about nineteen ninety eight. So Goodfellas is in the ninety one? Nine yeah, ninety or ninety one. Best known for her
2: performance is Karen Freeman Hill in the nineteen ninety Martin Scorsese film Goodfellas. So yeah, this is okay. long after that, but way before Sopranos.
3: This has a oh god, what was that movie with the, the bicycle movie where Michael Shannon's the bad guy and it's uh uh, shit, the kid from Third Rock from the Sun, and he's like a quick – he's like a superstar bike messenger who has to save the day. I huh, – You know what? He'll come to me.
2: <laughs> okay, now, the it's first not... thing we saw see is one of the criminals, and the very first thing he does is sneeze. That's important to the, to, oh. to the plot.
3: Well, if I can make spoil this movie, I've seen the original. That's the way Walter Matthau recognized the villain because <laughs> the villain sneezes on the phone and then he talks to him at the end of the movie and he has the same cadence sneeze. Right. Now, when he
2: sneezes in the 1974 one, the, the main bad guy looks at him like, you know, you idiot, right? And right. also, yeah. Walter Matthau's character notices... Hey, listen! did you hear that? Yeah. But that doesn't really happen in this one.
3: Huh. I found that charming. You know, sometimes movies are fun when it, it doesn't seem like it's an amusement park ride where everything is mechanical. You know, like a human error occurs, and that's the downfall. You know, something unexpected a like that. Point. Yeah. Like, that seems more natural. So I always liked that movie about it. Oh, I feel like I could smell the scent of the subway already. <laughs> movie pretty good now did you see the two no, kids? No the yeah is that, is that gonna the younger factor? one
2: is also a pre-sopranos actor
3: oh is it uh the sun
2: yeah it's it's um it's not the sun it's a he it was only in one episode of the sopranos it was a flashback to when tony was a kid
3: oh i gotcha so when was The Sopranos? You sent me. You really do act like it was before. It was after 1998.
2: What well, like, I, I don't would think
3: know it was when concurrent.
2: The sopranos started. Um,
3: I mean, let me
2: see if I. That's in the 90s.
3: But let me uh, do my uh, ask HBO. My HBO for HBO. Tell me more about The Sopranos. With pleasure. Thank you for your question. I was built to answer that question. The Sopranos
2: is the highest singer in a choir.
3: Oh, well, (laughs) is that helpful to you? Mm -hmm. According to Wikipedia. If I wanted Wikipedia, I would go ask fucking Wikipedia. Yeah, I would go browse to Wikipedia. Yeah. He cheater. Those voice uh, control devices, they're like, you know, cramming the information the night before. Well, according to Wikipedia.com, yeah, F can't get a book? <laughs> all right, so a bunch of shady people are just waiting for the uh, subway. It's, it's yeah, exactly and the truth is this is not time.
2: the New York City subway. This was all shot in Toronto.
3: Oh. Well, yeah, because you, you want a New York City movie without any flavor of New York City.
2: Right, exactly. Oh, except her right here. You see her? She's a flavor of New York yeah. City. She was born in Queens.
3: Oh, So she's making this movie authentic.
2: Yes, as is this guy who's right now getting held up.
3: Nice. No. Oh, so they only have the New York actors as the drivers in it. Oh, I guess a couple people in the control room booth will be like, "What's going on?"
2: No, they do the New York act. No, not her. Her, this she, that's Mrs. Brown, Ms. That's Mr. Brown, believe it or not, and she is actually all about Canada. She wormed her way into this production.
3: Nice. I like that. It's a diverse crowd. you got Americans and Canadians. Now, uh, we should mention that uh, usually if you watch a television show on cable, they have a, what they call a bug, which is a little logo that's on the corner of your screen. Yeah. But uh, we got to give it up to Gugge and Beruda for providing us a movie with a blurred screen. Oh, he sneezed. Yeah. Uh, as so before. Do you remember wiping your nose with your gun back when you could?
2: Yeah, before COVID, I used to wipe my nose with my gun. Didn't worry Me about it
3: I, I was holding, yeah, I was holding a Pelham four five six. You know, because uh, in real <laughs> life, that was that was some way to do. The um, this one so odd. One, two, or three.
2: The Pelham one, two, three. You're not from New
3: right. York, so, but
2: you kind of are.
3: I've never seen the first Taking of Column 1, 2, and the, the sequel, or Taking of Column 1, 2, 2. So I'm hoping this movie's better. You know, I don't want to get too confused because I've never now, seen the first sequel.
2: He is a subway driver who who's like disgruntled. He got fired, you know. So he's why.
3: Take it up. Uh,
2: he, that's why he's part of this plot.
3: Oh, I see. Is he going to get on the loudspeaker? I'm having a bad day.
2: He is going to get on the loudspeaker, and he is going to freak out.
3: (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Right, all the passengers are going to (laughs) hear... Fuck. Bad day. What? The loudspeaker
2: said what? So... I guess he's not going to get on the loudspeaker. He is going to talk to the cops. Um,
3: and now this is our Denzel Washington, Walter Matthau cop, right? Oh, no. He's just exactly. Going to... oh, look at that. <clears throat> that cat has a mask. No, he doesn't. This is he's a York City
2: um, subway car. It's just not a New York City subway car. Now, even though I know New York... Real well, I, I didn't notice that until they told me. Like the New York City ones, they sort right. of look like the seats at McDonald's. Uh, They're hard plastic with uh, orange colored uh, seat and
3: kind of
2: a pillow almost.
3: Yeah, usually there's McDonald's foods on the on seats.
2: So these are retired okay. Toronto TTC subway system cars, and they were shipped to the scrapyard the day after the filming was over, still described as New huh. York cars.
3: Oh, uh, so they didn't go to the wrap party, the cars? They Did, just immediately uh, sent them to the shipyard?
2: Now, this is Edward Almost, and he's a cop, and for some reason, he's already in the subway. He's like on the trans speed oh, yeah. or something weird. And they're noticing that Pelham that, has stopped.
3: Is that the subway nerve system? I guess. The, the, yeah. So he's just It's weird thing almost he looks young, even though it was 1998.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I remember him from a, uh, Blade Runner. That's how I got to know him.
3: Okay. But wasn't he dressed up as an old man in that movie? That was 82. And then he's in the sequel, I think.
2: Yeah, he is Blade in the
3: Runner sequel. 20... Right, 2049. It a long yeah. They that 2049 and 2050, because that was one long movie. <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: That movie was going yeah.
2: great. It was going great. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it said, yeah, we're going to suck for the rest of the film.
3: Hey, do you guys like Tara Lata? We don't either. Here he is. <laughs> great. They wait like two hours into the movie before bringing in Jaron Leto because you can't get your money back. You sat through two thirds of the movie, buddy. (laughs) I didn't know. I didn't know he was in this movie. Sorry, man. I got Joker insurance. We're not paying you back.
2: Okay, so they detach the other car, and they're just in one car. Now, in real life, it's two cars because – Toronto subway cars were like that. You have to have two cars attached. I don't know why, but they'll trick us throughout the film to make us think this is one cab, one car.
3: Technically, there's only Pelham One Two in this movie, but they're they're using movie magic to make okay, it look like Pelham so 1-2-3. Mike, the way it works is
2: there is a track of no, yes. a line of track called Pelham. It's called the Pelham line. Right. Okay, and you could get on right, one of three cars there. You can get on two local cars, right. the one or the two. But if a three comes along, it's only stopping at certain stations. So the Pelham 123 is all the cars that They're run not three
3: cars. I got you. So it's not three train cars on one connected together. It's three different lines. Correct. Now, I, I may ask, no, they, it's not three,
2: three different lines. Engine? It's one line, but there's three different types uh-huh. of trains. Three different types of trains.
3: Oh, I got you. Perfect. And they're friends with Thomas the Tank Engine, or am I Yes, wrong they about are. That? Two
2: locals they... and one express, oh. and the locals are friends with Thomas. Okay. Oh, that's now, so sweet. Vincent D. Onofrio. I don't know how to say it. He's uh, Gomer Pile from office. Full Metal Jacket. He's letting it be yeah, known they've sure. been hijacked. Oh, that's not
3: nice. Is that the guy that is he the Hulk? No, that's Mark Ruffio. Right. chips. He looks like the Hulk, doesn't he? I
2: that
3: guess, so. I must Men in Black. Or...
2: Yeah, Men in Black. He's he a in... in Men in Black. Yeah.
3: I guess he was good as Gomer Pyle, too. That was a pretty good movie.
2: It really <laughs> was. And um, he was th- the Gomer Pyle character was a thin, skinny, redneck kind of guy. But when um, uh, the director, what's that famous director's name? When he saw this guy, he said it would be better if he was chubby and clumsy. That's how this guy got his gig, that gig. It's launched a career for him.
3: Yeah, well, it's an intense uh, intense role and intense preparation. Yeah,
2: he uh, wouldn't be on Law & Order if it wasn't for that.
3: I think the last time I watched that movie was on a double video cassette. Uh-huh. You know, it's been a while. I just, it's an intense movie. You don't, you know, you don't have to see it every day.
2: You know, what's funny is it is two movies, right? It's the movie at boot camp. Right, yeah. the movie in Vietnam. It's two movies.
3: Yeah, but that's what's so great about it is that the preparation they give to you, it has nothing to do with what actually happens. You know, it's, uh. Try to dehumanize you to the point where you attack back, and then you uh, are sent off to this kind of crazy war. Anyway, I don't know what this has to do with column one or two or or the express, huh?
0: Did I take notes?
3: The three. Nothing. Can you imagine being in Toronto in rush hour and only a two car train that shows up at five at five fifteen? You're like, fuck you. Yes, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm commuter complaining.
2: well no we just missed uh, the line supervisors like getting frustrated why isn't he moving i'm going down there so he's going down there in person now this guy Uh. is it's his lucky day even though he doesn't know it he's being told to go get the other passengers from the other train and walk them off of the tracks so he's basically getting to go now she stands up and says i gotta go I have a doctor's appointment. And he's like, no way, no way. Then she says, this happened to me on the Long Island Railroad two years ago, and I can't take it again. So that must be a reference to Colin Ferguson.
3: Oh, tell me, what was up with Colin Ferguson?
2: Colin Ferguson in 96 was a guy who went batshit crazy and shot up a bunch of people on the LIE. And his court case was very famous. And he represented himself like an idiot. Um, and, you know, Colin, you didn't hear of that yeah. shooting, I guess. You were deep in Frisco by that that's time.
3: Right. 98, I was deep in Frisco, that's right. Yeah. I wasn't really uh, involved in Long Island Expressway.
2: Right. Well, I mean, you yeah. certainly heard of, like, um, uh, it was around the time of, like,. Um, what is it? What is it? Amy, what's her name? Uh, Buttafus- fusco. Amy, Amy, Amy Fisher. Amy, It was right? around mm-hmm. the time of Amy Fisher and Donnie Bonifuco, whatever his name is, and this took a yeah, little bit Donnie of press time Fisher. away from those guys.
3: Colin. Yeah, I'm familiar with Joey and uh, Amy Fisher, the Long Island Melita, but I'd never heard of Colin Ferguson, the Long Island Melita killer.
2: Joey Buttafuoco. That's right. That's right.
3: L I the L I E D O A. <laughs>
2: the Did lights went see, out. Uh, and the third everybody out. They cut the power, and everyone That's got super
3: scared. A, jittery. Every, yeah, have you ever been in a bar when it shuts down? People freak out. Yeah. <laughs> I can't breathe. Yeah, I get it. We're underwater.
2: It sucks. Now he's Mr. Blue, just like uh, Reservoir Dogs. They all have colors. So that we're looking right now is Mr. Green, and he's setting up uh, motion detectors.
3: Now, now, Pelham 1974 also had the colors. That came before Reservoir Dogs.
2: Yes. And Quentin Tarantino has yes. to admit to something he didn't invent, right? <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, it's all in the spirit of you know, the cultural appropriation. No, not even that. It's re. Uh, they're uh, remixing. He's remixing existing uh, popular tropes.
2: Yes, I suppose so.
3: Yeah. yeah. He's not ripping off wholesale. Of He's ripping off wholesale, of but for a reason.
2: Now, this guy yeah. is your typical. When- I'm a New Yorker! I'm the head of some thing in New York, so I'm all mad all the time.
3: Good morning, Pelham. That's
2: right. He's like, what is this? He's screaming. Oh, Pelham. Pelham. Answer me. It's
3: time to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, hi. One time listening, first time calling. I love <laughs> listening to Pelham123. Oh, well, that's entirely possible. <sighs> this is Gomer Pyle. <laughs> one, two, three, I'm here for the whole car business. What do you mean, Mark Rufalo? You know, uh, do you know that hey. personally coming down there to We have taken your train. So he, we have taken your train. Holy shit. What are you this must be the taking of Helen. one two three?
2: Yeah, I take that train every day They work.
3: Which one? The, thr- the one or the two or do the you think the express? The, the three. The three, yeah. Uh, yeah. I like how there's no one on the subway. What exactly do you mean? Yeah, they're always taking time. Are you the operator?
1: Negative.
3: Then who are you? Do I look like you at Thomas? What? We are
1: heavily
2: armed. Are heavily armed. armed. We have hostages.
3: Uh-huh. And we're in a bad mood. And we have $20 in our PayPal account. Things are going to get fucked up.
2: <laughs> now, they put wow. those numbers, Mr. Green, Mr. Blue, Mr. Brown, and Mr. Gray, and only Mr. Right. Green's real name do we get to hear. Like in... The 1974 one, we learn all of their names, um, but in this one, it's only this guy, his name's Herbert Langman. He's, at the end, they go to his apartment,
3: you know. It was, it was one of the like, come on, Herbert, we gotta take over this train. <laughs> Don't use my name. I'm so sorry, Mr. Langham. I'll never do that again. <laughs> so
2: now he's calling his old partner, um... Lorraine Bracco mm-hmm. saying, you know, she's like, how are you liking the transit department? Things not enough for you there. And he goes, it's pretty real right now. We got a hijacking. Get down here. And she's like, well, I'll be right there. These
3: now, guys, are. did they just shoot one day? Like, did they almost just go into that one set and they're just like, go nuts. You
2: would think with her accent that she's all New York, but she lived in France in seventy-four. She was a fashion model and she lived there for like ten years. Um and when she was I know. she was modeling this guy, his name's Mark Camoletti, I don't know, offered her a film a a role, a major role in for one of his plays in a film. And she took it for the money. She said it was a boring experience. Her performance was terrible. But everybody liked her. Uh, And she did two other French films just for the money. That's how she didn't even want to be in
3: movies. Just for the money is a great French film. Delightful.
2: Oh, really? (laughs) Should I put it in my. Well,
3: and what about this? And what about this movie? She did it for the, the, the experience?
2: I think she was a movie star by this point, and she was a working actress. But in the 80s, she was a disc jockey for Radio Luxembourg.
3: That's so crazy. Yeah. The soprano therapist or the video DJ?
2: And now if it's Luxembourg, I guess she was speaking French. I'm sure she's fluent in French. Yeah. She was yeah, one of uh, the uh, wow. they considered for Catwoman, you know, that uh, um, Tim Co- Tim Burton's uh, Batman.
3: Yeah, Batman Returns.
2: Right, but she turned them down.
3: Wow, she turned down Batman?
2: Yeah, what that, that, that... cuckoo bird was uh, going for the part, remember? And she turned them down.
3: No cuckoo bird, I know what you're referring to. You're talking about Sean uh, Young, yeah, right. for me it's just seems as cuckoo as anyone else. Yeah, she uh, made homemade audition tapes for the first movie, mm-hmm. and sent it out and went public. But I don't think she was even in the running by the second. So, oh no, maybe you're right. Maybe she did it was for Catwoman. This well, weird uh, Tim
2: Burton's uh, Batman was the one with Danny DeVito, and that was the Catwoman one, oh, right. and
3: she yeah, so showed be- up
2: in person to audition. Officer, uh, what's going so on? You she, can't you see
3: him on the payphone? Yeah. Well, I right called
2: him on the radio, and they said, listen, we got to tell you something sensitive. Phone in. And that is that the train's been hijacked. So, the one subway guy who's going down there to see what's
3: going on,
2: they're like, go stop him, you know? So, he's right. going to get on the tracks.
3: Good for him. He was able to use a tape phone without wiping it down. That's really good.
2: It's pre COVID.
3: Well, it's also like pre broken subway payphone every every station
2: oh I see what you're saying well this is Toronto
3: yeah when was the last time you there's still payphones in the uh, uh, BART stations like if you ever needed a payphone you should go to a, a subway station really
2: that's actually
3: very put, good yeah cause I don't know you know I used to walk around with quarters in my pocket all the time for the phone now, here's Michio Kaku.
2: Okay, it's not Michio Kaku. Okay, now we have like fake analysis of uh, Mr. Blue's mentality. You know, he's a mastermind, he's got everything planned down to the second. It's really quite ridiculous.
3: He uh, he's mellow he's melancholic, he's uh depressed, he uh he has depression, he likes the ocean. You're just associating things with the word blue. No, no, he's a smurf, uh he uh, is a Krishna. Uh I'm gonna be late for my doctor's appointment. The the kid's gotta go pee. Yeah. It's unpredictable. Well, I'm
1: just saying yeah.
3: that- Is it number
2: one or number two? Mr. Brown is getting upset. Uh, maybe it isn't right now. Maybe I'm wrong. But when he does go, it's a number one.
3: Okay. Well, I mean, how many times have you seen this movie?
2: I've. This is my only my third time. That we, uh, we kind of rushed oh. to. Okay. Yeah, well, now we have it. Mr. Gray. And Mr. Gray is the founding member of New Kids on the Block.
3: Oh, that's Donnie W. Yeah, hey, that's Wahlburger. Yeah, And I'd love to watch that show. Wahlburgers—that's a great show. It's like the one and a half hour advertisement after another half hour advertisement. But Donnie gets involved, and Jenny McCarthy, his wife, comes up. They come up with a Jenny Burger, and she doesn't <laughs> like it. Jenny
2: McCarthy is his wife. Oh my god, <laughs> that's perfect for him.
3: Yeah. And she's all over like Wahlburgers, you know, because they'll be like Wahlburgers is their other brother, who's a cook, and their mom, and they go into the franchise business, and so they have this one, you know, signature restaurant, and that's what the reality show is based on. And this is a real. Uh, they came up with the. Yeah, it's not that interesting, but it is kind of interesting. You know, it's one of those kind of reality shows where you—it doesn't really matter if you're watching it, but it's kind of it's all right. Well, my. Look at a Mac. Sh- Showed him
2: as being part of the Saw films. Uh, He was in a band of brothers. Yeah. Because
3: it was uh, Danny Glover in the first movie and then Wahlberg in the second movie, like playing the depressed cop trying to chase after Jigsaw. Uh,
2: I have never seen a Saw film. I've never seen it. You ever see Saw? I never saw Saw. That's
3: good. I've seen them all, and there's going to be another one, Spiral, with Chris Rock and Sam Jackson.
2: Mm-hmm. Samuel L. Jackson. Oh my God, those are know, some high-powered names for a Saw part blah, blah, yeah, blah,
3: blah. movie. Right? Wow. Well, that that horror sequel, I think they made like six saws, and then there was Jigsaw, which is kind of a spin on it, where there's like a new uh, mastermind. I learned a lot from those movies. I always take notes. Like for example, if you wake up and your head's in the aquarium filled with uh, used hypodermic needles, best to swallow your tongue than to shake your to cut your arm off. It's just you know general common sense.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Admit that you ran over this kid in the nineteen eighty four, and then swallow some broken glass, and you you know you cathartically feel okay. You'll thank Jigsaw for it. So Mister Blue
2: tells Mister Gray to leave the wo- woman alone, and he's like. You didn't say the magic word what's the magic word and he goes the magic word is money and then mr gray like snaps too no he's right well
3: in 1998 it would probably be heroin yeah man toronto heroin in the late 90s so you didn't see
2: the walter Matthau film
3: i did see the walter Matthau film oh you did everyone wears snazzy hats yeah they're all slumpy. He's slumpy. He slumps around. I think they they smoke cigarettes in the nerve center. And uh, at the end, he walks by a guy on the platform, and the guy sneezes funny, and he says, "Bless you." And the guy says, Bob fuck you." And he goes, "Wait a minute, I recognize that." Wait, I recognize that sneeze.
2: No, in the end, that happens at the apartment.
3: Yes, that's right. They're they're off station. They made it to their destination.
2: What about the Denzel Washington
3: one? Well it's, been a while since I've seen the, well, it's been a while since I've seen the other one, too. Yeah, I think it's the same thing at the end.
2: Yeah, but... Okay, so you did see them both, right?
3: Right. This is the only film I haven't seen. I've seen Pelham 1, and I've seen Pelham 1, too.
2: So, Johnny... Uh, uh, John Travolta in denzel washington's version is like a crazy crazy right but in this film and the the guy's pretty pretty cold right he's pretty pretty to the point and calculated
3: i forgot travolta's in that movie god it's so ridiculous okay so
2: now it's time to pee so the boy goes to pee and it's a number one pee
3: oh is this gonna be on which rail don't piss on the third rail
2: is that act two? Power is off. Power is off. Wait. Oh, okay.
3: Are they going to the restrooms in the subway station?
2: But what we're going to get right. here is the transit worker, uh, she starts to soft talk uh, Mr. Brown. She's like, looked at the necklace, oh. which is an AK-47, and she's like, what does that make you tough? Are you bad? I used to be bad. I was so bad I lost my kid. Now I got a job, I got my son back. You could be on the good too, girl. Yeah,
3: but Mr. Brown's not taking it.
2: Yeah, Mr. Brown takes it. Mr. Brown tries to be tough. But, uh, you know, it's hard around Babs. She's very convincing.
3: A lot of people say my AK-47 necklace is a conversation starter. Thank you.
2: <laughs> now, um, uh, Mr. Brown was all over TV um, in the 90s, and it sort of seems like she's gone back to Canada now. But she was in um, Silver Surfer TV series, just one episode. She was in ER as a doctor, uh she uh, was on the um, D- Total Recall twenty seventy Highlander. And there was a Silver, so
3: she was on a TV version of Highlander. She was in the TV version of Total Silver, Silver Surfer. Yeah, so, Total Recall.
2: Mm-hmm. And there's a twenty nineteen. Well, no, that's today.
3: Um,
2: right. She was in the Firm TV series for two episodes.
3: That's nuts. Come up with your own stuff. Why don't you do something originally?
2: She's taking whoever answers the phone, and I'm with her on this. So now she's <laughs> like in uh, back in Canada with the family, but she's totally into yeah. acting still.
3: Uh huh. They're calling her up and like, she you want to do still Magnolias? Yeah, fuck yeah! It's calling me, waiting for all my life. <laughs> Great.
2: Like, okay." Did you ever hear mm-hmm. of Impulse? It's on YouTube Red. Impulse.
3: No, there was, there was a Timothy Hunnan movie called Impulse, where a town does whatever it wants, like something possesses the people and they they like pee in the middle of the street. What <laughs> really? is that? YouTube did I movie? see it? Yeah. What year? I don't. You got like 81, 82 like suddenly the town like you know they fuck each other and they like they do whatever they break glass and whatever pleases them they just do it on impulse interesting yeah i don't know if i mean i haven't seen that movie in a long time i I think i just remember the trailers so in nine in 2019
2: she was in ransom um for the TV version of the movie. Yeah, right? TV I don't know, but it what it is a TV series. So like she had a lot of gigs in the 90s and then it's like it feels like time to raise children cuz she went away for about 15 years. Uh, and then she had how, how, more work nowadays.
3: I don't understand like did the producers uh, the showrunners were like this will be a great six season run of hostage of ransom. Yeah, right. Yeah, they I'll still dra- have the get yeah, Oh, welcome season two. they abduct another kid
2: <laughs> right like, oh, they're sending your child we're sending him to college
3: <laughs> <laughs> for four years now here, season five. He, your kid graduated
2: now here comes the guy who was like, I'm gonna find out what's going on down there. Never mind, it took him all this time to finally walk down there, but uh Donny's gonna totally yeah. shoot him
3: uh. Don't mess with the other Wahlberg. Did you poop Grant's tour? Yep. I'm the line superintendent. I'm coming on board.
2: I warned you, stupid. So the line superintendent oh. gets his.
3: Good. I warned you, wow. stupid. Shot a machine gun in a subway station.
2: Pa-pa-pow!
3: Hot gun, hot gun. Yeah, he's all business in this movie. I think he's the only actor who's walking. Everyone else is just sitting around yelling at the microphone. There's another
0: flip on the screen. Just one? As far as I know, yeah.
3: So
2: their radar detector is really helpful because it lets them know who's coming. And, of course, they didn't have that in 74 version.
3: Uh, No, yeah. And I 2009 2009
2: version either.
3: And Did the the 9 version, like, everyone's, like, going on their cell phones, and they're like, what happened? We connected the, disconnected the router or some shit like that.
2: I don't remember. I did see that film. There was also this interesting subplot in which he got a bribe, you know, Denzel Washington. Remember, Denzel Washington wasn't a cop, right? He was, like, Mr. Blue said, I like you. I want to talk to you. I'm not talking to the negotiator. It was different.
3: Huh. Yeah, I see what you're saying. He was just an everyman, Denzel Washington. Like, how people mistake me for Denzel. <laughs> when, when they always have, like, a, an A-list celebrity playing, like, an average show who gets mixed up in something, I'm always like, yeah, the average show looks like fucking Denzel Washington. Right. Good job. Mr. Handsome. Yeah. So... They find out that
2: poor Chaz Holloway has been shot, and everybody in command central's freaking
3: out. Oh, not! He owed me money. I'm never gonna get that money back. Now we're getting more of Bab
2: softening Mister Brown. You think
3: you're yeah.
1: a badass girl? <laughs>
3: is that what you say? Yeah. Yeah. Listen, lady, I don't believe in Christ. We stop talking to me. My stop's next.
2: Right.
3: Uh, you know what? If someone like took over the bar station, no one's gonna notice. You know, they'll go in the the train. Uh, excuse me, everyone. Excuse me. I don't mean to take up any of your time, but uh, we'll be taking over your train.
2: <laughs> oh, good. First I thought you were a panhandler.
3: Oh yeah. <laughs> Oh, I thought you were going to dance while, while the train's going.
2: By the way, it was a 1993 Colin Ferguson shooting. Now, I know you don't know about that, but someone listening probably does. That was a big deal, that uh, that incident.
3: And they reference it in the, in the 90s television straight-to-DVD version. Okay, so
2: I missed it, but Mr. uh Mr. Gre- uh, Mr. B- Green was just freaking out. Huh. So that leads them to say, "This guy sounds like a disgruntled former worker. Can I have a list of all the people who got fired, you know?" And they start to Right, right. break down um Who could it be? Now we learn something that's a plot point that's not going to lead to anywhere, anywhere, anywhere. There is an undercover cop on the subway. But she, I gotta tell you, she does not do anything. In the way end, she has a role and she shoots somebody, but she's hardly a player now he's oh wait new york freak out Uh, here he goes he said the f word and they blanked it out
3: wow so this was maybe do you think this was theatrically release
2: uh no i think this was on abc